We're looking in Mark chapter 1 today, beginning a new series on the gospel of Mark, uh, called today's message, The Beginning of the Gospel. And there it is, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The New Testament gives us four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them have a different starting point. Mark begins with the preacher known as the Baptist, John the baptizer. Luke began with the background and birth of John the Baptist. Matthew takes us through the ancestry, the genealogy of Jesus as traced through Joseph. John begins with that cosmic view of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our Bible begins with the expression, in the beginning. Two of the gospel accounts in the beginning of the gospel. You'll notice the similarities between how Mark begins and how John begins. Both of them speaking of the beginning. Why four gospels? It's a great time for us to talk about the inspiration of scripture. The Bible is inspired and that means that it is God breathed. But God did not so move in these men that their personality was removed. And verbal plenary inspiration is the technical title of it. And it simply means that uh, God was working and through the Holy Spirit to inspire these men to write their words. And their words then were written without error, without mistake, totally inspired of God. And yet their personality, the personality of the author, the perspective of the author came through. Dr. Luke, it shouldn't surprise you, used a whole lot of words that no other New Testament writer used. And his personality, his knowledge, his background came through. Each one of the gospel writers had a slightly different perspective, a slightly different viewpoint. They wrote for different reasons. Mark apparently wrote his gospel for the people at Rome, the believers at Rome. Now, we were introduced to John Mark through his initial failure as a missionary in, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12 and 13 records that time when he joined up with his uncle or cousin Barnabas and the apostle Paul. And he did fine in Cyprus, but when they crossed the sea into the city of Perga, which is in modern Turkey, uh, Mark was finished and, and he headed home. He wanted to come back on another journey. but And while Barnabas was excited about taking him on, Mark, uh, Paul was not willing to do so. And in fact, Paul and Barnabas ended up splitting up and going in different directions over John Mark. But aren't you glad this morning that God wasn't through with John Mark? Uh, yes, he had failed. He had messed up. But God gave him another chance and many other chances. He would befriend Simon Peter, and they got so close in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. Simon Peter said, She who was in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, Peter wasn't saying that Mark was his biological son. He was his son in the faith. They were close, and they had, been, had a close relationship. 
Toward the end of his life then, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 would write to Timothy and say, Bring Mark with you. Go get Mark and bring him because he is profitable to me for the ministry. Oh, listen, one of the great messages of the Christian faith is that failure is not final. And just because we go down doesn't mean that God has counted us out. He can pick us up and use us again. And here is Mark then being used of God to write one of the gospel messages. This gospel was perhaps a predecessor to the book of Romans. They were both written uh, about the same time in the early 50s. Uh, That's 20 or so years uh, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, That would take us in our time back to the Y2K time, uh, 2000. Y'all remember Y2K? Some of you don't (laughs) because you weren't born yet. I understand. But those of us that were alive remember it well. We could talk about it. We could write about it. I remember uh, things that were going on then. Very clearly, we have very clear memories of what was going on about 20 years ago. We can talk about that. In fact, some of us can talk better about what happened 20 years ago than we can talk about what happened yesterday. Amen? I mean, we know how that works. So what I want want us to understand is that Mark's memory was still very fresh of what had happened. Uh, This was not many, many years later, although uh, God could certainly work through that and did. It was all the way to the end of the first century when John the Elder would pick up his inspired pen and write those famous words of the Gospel of John. John's memories had not faded. Uh, Remember, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But John Mark was writing in a, a very specific time frame. About the same time that the book of Romans was written and the book of Mark was written, uh, Nero would come on the scene as emperor of Rome. We know that he ascended to his position in the year 54. And Nero would bring all the decadence and violence and ruthlessness that he was known for. The Judean rebellion would be in full swing uh, less than a decade later. Before this, or right about the same time, the emperor Claudius would ban the Jews from Rome for a time so that all the Jews had to leave Rome. It was a time of growing unrest, a time of growing danger for God's people in the midst of a rising and flourishing hatred for the Jews. Today we call that anti-Semitism. Rising hatred for the Jewish people and a rising antagonism toward Christianity. In fact, within another 20 years after this time, the Christians would be accused by Nero of burning Rome. And the penalty, of course, for what they had done was he burned a lot of Christians to death. The persecution that was begun under Nero of Christianity would claim the lives of Paul and of Peter and of many of the other apostles. It was a terrible time and it was surely coming. The Roman writer Tacitus would speak of Christians as being convicted not for burning Rome, he said, but for their hatred of the human race. And I found that an intriguing quote this week, that all the way back to the time of the Romans, Christians were 
being accused of hating people. We were called haters even then. And I understand where the thinking comes from. Because you see, we, we preach the message that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Which is eternal separation from God and punishment in a place the Bible calls hell. We, we preach the truth. And we can understand then why that folks might say, well, well you guys hate us. Because you're calling us sinners. You hate us. Uh, the fact is we are simply proclaiming the truth of God. God is the one who said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He defines our sin both positively in the sense that we have transgressed the law of God. God has told us not to do things and we do it anyway. He defines it negatively in the sense that God tells us to do things that we fail to do. And on both sides of that equation then our sinfulness comes through. It is the message of sin and condemnation and the need for repentance. Oh, but it's not just that. <laughs> it is also the fact that men are already condemned by God. Jesus said that in John chapter 3. Whosoever believeth not is condemned already, he said, because he hath not believed on the name of the everlasting Son of God. And so because people in their sin and in their unbelief are already under the condemnation of God, we have the good news to tell, the good news of the gospel that all can be saved and that all can be forgiven. It's not a hateful thing then for us to tell people that they are sinners and that they're under the condemnation of God. It would be a hateful thing for us to fail to tell them of the good news of the gospel that can save them from their eternal condemnation. But I can understand, we do understand why that people in their rebellion, in their rejection of Jesus Christ would accuse Christians of being haters. Into that environment came the gospel of Mark. All these centuries later, we can bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into the growing chaos of our world. The Gentiles, and that included the Romans, would declare the message of Christ a foolish superstition. But John Mark tells the truth. He started at the beginning, the beginning of the gospel. It all started, and that's what Mark 1 and 1 tells us, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But if you think you read through God, John's gospel and get to the end, you don't. Uh, the end of the gospel is not here yet. This is the beginning of the gospel, but all these many years later, we are still continuing that work of telling people of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of announcing the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, of proclaiming to them the necessity, yes, of repentance, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but then the offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ then starts with the messenger Sent from God with a message. That shouldn't surprise us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In the beginning of the gospel, God sent him a preacher, a messenger, to proclaim that message, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will serve then as the outline for our consideration of this passage today, the messenger and the message. And we begin with that messenger, John, who, verse 4 says, came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mark does not give us the circumstances of John's birth, but Luke did. We know that he was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth long after uh, they had passed the age of childbearing. This did not happen in some obscure place. It happened in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, Zacharias would be ministering there in the temple when he received a, a visit from an angel, a heavenly messenger who proclaimed that, that his wife was going to have a child. Uh, he thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> and he ended up not being able to talk for a while because of that. God struck him mute, you remember? And uh, so he went out telling everybody, this didn't happen in a corner. Uh, this wasn't some obscure place. This happened in Jerusalem. This made news. In that town. Somebody might have suggested that, uh, you know, well, he just is an old man. He can't pay any attention to what they had. But sure enough, the Bible speaks of that time when Elizabeth could no longer uh, hide her pregnancy. And then before long, lo and behold, she had a baby. According to the word of God and the promise of God. John then would spend his life under the natural uh, uh, consideration that such a thing would bring. I mean, people knew about the circumstances of his birth. They knew then that he was going to be a special child and that God had a special plan for him. He would live his life in the wilderness, crying out or bellowing out the message that God had given him. And he was the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. That would mean a lot to Mark's Jewish audience, whoever they were. But even the Gentiles would take notice of the fact that Isaiah the prophet had promised John the Baptist in his ministry. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then there was Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Mark simply presents these matters as accomplished historical facts. People knew Zechariah. They knew, of course, Elizabeth. Uh, the story about John was widely known. Every single gospel account mentions these prophecies of Isaiah chapter 40 and of Malachi chapter 3. It is significant to notice that John uh, did not really go around to the cities and preach to people. He preached in the wilderness and the people came out to hear him preach to where he was. 
Uh, he had an unusual personality. The Bible says that, that he was clothed in camel hair clothing. Uh, that did not mean that he wore animal skins. Uh, they would take camel hair just like you would take the wool of sheep and, and spin it into threads. And they would then make clothing out of that. And uh, John would wear that. Uh, he also wore a, a leather belt. And if that sounds vaguely to you, familiar to you, it should. Elijah was called a hairy man. That is, he wore a clothes that was also made of animal hair. He also was known for wearing that big leather belt. And so John the Baptist had assumed a prophet's attire. God would warn them in the Old Testament about those who were wearing a, a prophet's attire. And yet they did not have a prophet's heart or a prophet's message. But John had it all. He was dressed like Elijah. And he preached like Elijah. He had that unusual diet. Which meant that he uh, lived off the land as it were. But you know Elijah had an unusual diet as well. Uh, the crows came and fed him and. As R.G. Lee said, he ate birds' food and widows' fare. Uh, they had an unusual diet. He led, lived in the wilderness. He had a work to do. And it was to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Let's so read on in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2. Uh, we've already seen verse 1. He goes on then. Who can endure the day of his coming? Remember uh, Malachi promised that he would come suddenly and appear in his temple. Now in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old as in former years. John's message was simple. Jesus is coming and you need to get ready to meet him. He'll be like a refiner's fire that's burning away the dross, like the launderer's soap that's washing away the impurities. The emphasis, according to Malachi, would be on the priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel. But isn't it interesting that those priests and spiritual leaders would be the ones guilty of rejecting both the messenger, John the Baptist, and the Messiah that he proclaimed. For us today, we need to recognize that John the Baptist knew exactly who he was. And he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. And he lived his life and worked very faithfully within those perimeters. It must have been a heady trip when all of Judea and all of Jerusalem was coming out to hear him. When the crowds were, were coming to him and, and his name was on everybody's lips. But John the Baptist didn't let that go to his head at all. He kept doing. What God had told him to do. Right up into the time when it cost him his head and he died. Because he preached. <laughs> and what was he preaching? Same thing. Jesus is coming and you needed to get ready. And it didn't matter if it was Herod up in the, in the king's palace. Or who it was. He preached to them all. The king is coming. And you need to get ready for him. Jesus then would respond to the messenger and the ministry of John the Baptist by saying in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, 
Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What a tribute Jesus paid to John the Baptist. He was God's messenger. He was sent with the message. And the message then is identified in our text in two ways. Uh, First of all, uh, verse 7, it says, He preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and lose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is a message about the person of Jesus Christ. But the other time where it talks about his preaching, John, verse 4, came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, baptism did not produce repentance. Baptism did not produce remission of sins. They were baptized because they repented and therefore received remission. If you have not repented of your sins and been, had your sins then forgiven, you have no business being baptized at all. And John would say that exact thing to a group of religious leaders who came to him in Matthew chapter 3. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Repentance, you see, came before baptism. I want to give you four things this morning that repentance does for us or that is involved in repentance. First of all, uh, there is conviction of sin. Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 8 that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. This is not just convicting us of the, the fact of our sins, whatever they might be. But it is even more convicting us of the fact of our being sinners. It's not just that we have done wrong, but that we are wrong. Not just that we sin, but that we are sinners. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But it takes the Holy Spirit to get that truth down to us. Our natural inclination as human beings is just think of ourselves and say, I'm not that bad. Now somebody else, that's somebody else over there, they're bad. But I'm not that bad. But the fact is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me explain to you how that plays out. We know that the book of James tells us that if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of all. That doesn't mean that we have done everything uh, that the law says for us not to do. We might look at that and we say, well, I, 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 it's not to kill anybody, not commit murder. I've, I've never committed murder. I, I've, I've got that one down. And then there comes lying. And we say, well, you know, I don't ever lie unless I have to. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't steal. Well, I, I, I hadn't stole much. I, I, I don't. You see our problem yet. It doesn't mean that we have done everything that the law prohibits. But if we have done anything that the law prohibits, then the law has done its job. It has convicted us, not just of our sins, but of our being a sinner, of our sinfulness. All have sinned, and yes, that includes me, all therefore 
are, have fallen short of the glory of God. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of that truth. Repentance also then involves a confession of sin. Once we have understood the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, then comes the confession of sins. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Right here in our text, the passage speaks of how the people came to John and were baptized confessing their sins. The word confess means to speak the same thing or to agree. God says that we're sinners. And we say, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. It's true. I'm a sinner. Repentance involves a contrition for sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 talks about godly sorrow, contrition. The feeling of sorrow that leads to repentance. It isn't just a sorrow that we've been caught. Although that is something. In our culture today, we see examples of every day of people who get caught, and yet they're not sorry at all. But it is something if someone is caught and then they have sorrow, but that's not biblical repentance. It is that natural sense of sorrow toward God as we realize that we have sinned against the God who loves us the way He loves for us, who has done for us what He has done for us. It is a turning then of our, from our prideful unbelief to the, and the sin that it brings into our life. It's the contrition. Repentance involves a godly sorrow. Then repentance brings conversion. Conversion. Repentance and faith have been described as being heads and tails of the same coin Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, I'm just going to mention this today. Jesus came preaching and he said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, repentance and belief. You see, when we talk about how that repentance means that we turn from our sins, we're converted from our sins, that doesn't mean that we could forsake all of our sins. If we could forsake all of our sins, folk, we wouldn't need to be saved at all. Uh, that, that's not what it means. But it means that here we are. We have our back toward God. And we have our face toward our sin. We are in our sin. But there is that sense in when we turn from our sin and we turn to God. There's a conversion of our sin. A contrition. That sense of godly sorrow. That conviction that comes as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. And we confess our sin. Then I am a sinner. You say, preacher, why are you talking about this so much? Because you can't be saved until you admit that you're a sinner. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You're not a sinner. Well, let me say right up front, you are a sinner. But if you can't admit it, you can't acknowledge that you've sinned against God, then there's no salvation. But Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, Simon Peter would stand there at Cornelius' household and say to him, all the prophets witness. And what do all the prophets witness? That through His name, that is the name of Jesus, whoever believes in Him will receive the remission of sins. Forgiveness. So when 
John the Baptist came preaching a a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. It wasn't that baptism would produce their repentance and then bring about then the remission of sin. No, repentance, Simon Peter says it, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. When we turn to God, when we turn from our sin, when we turn to him, when we believe then on Jesus Christ, then we receive the remission of our sins. And the Bible gives us the glorious declaration that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. (laughs) That means there's nothing left for the waters of baptism to wash away because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. When we believe on Him, Simon Peter says, we receive the remission of sins. John preached a message of repentance and remission of sins that was shown in their baptism. But while baptism did not produce that repentance and remission, we don't need to underemphasize the role of baptism. Remember, Mark's gospel begins with the preaching of baptism and the practice of baptism. It will end with Jesus saying, Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. I'm afraid so often in our culture today, the emphasis on a have-it-your-way kind of faith often ignores or de-emphasizes the need for baptism. And we simply cannot do that biblically. We'll be talking more about baptism next week, so I'm not going to spend any more time there when next we gather to consider this passage in the book of Mark. But suffice it to say this morning... That while we don't want to try to say that baptism produces repentance and remission of sins because it doesn't. We also don't want to underemphasize baptism. If you've been saved, you need to be baptized. So, so John was preaching then about the repentance and preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But he also then preaches the appearing of that Messiah. Remember John knew exactly who he was. And exactly what he was supposed to do. And that was to point people to the coming one. Um, John was preaching about the coming of the Messiah. And telling people that they need to get ready to meet him. After all of these many centuries folk. We are still preaching the coming of the Messiah. And still telling people they need to get ready to meet him and I told you already that you know we're looking at the beginning of the gospel but you don't get to the end of the book of Mark and get to the end of the gospel we're still moving and working and serving and preaching the gospel but there is going to come a time when it's going to be the end and there's even a whole section of scriptures that relates to what we call the end times I believe we're closer to it than we've ever been before. After all these many centuries, you see, we are still preaching that the Messiah is coming, that He's going to appear suddenly, just like Malachi said He would. And you need to be ready to meet Him. Are you ready? The beginning of the gospel God sent a preacher to prepare people for the Savior. He came preaching repentance and remission of sins. 
baptizing people in Old River Jordan, warning them of the wrath to come. Mark's gospel was initially for the believers at Rome, already living in difficult times, headed full speed into a time of persecution. Folks, their world wasn't evolving and getting better. It was devolving and getting worse. And the only hope of lost humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We look around in our world today and we see a growing state of chaos. Our world is not getting better. Our world is getting worse. It's around you in every direction that you look. And as John Mark wrote this gospel and injected into that world where there was a growing chaos, so today we'll preach this same message and preach it for the growing chaos in our world. I want to close out in John chapter 20 and verse 31 this morning. But these are written, John says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I want you to see that emphasized passage, a portion of the passage that I have there before you. Both of those concepts are presented in a progressive sense that we are believing, that we keep on believing in the Christ, the Son of God, and that as we keep on believing, then you keep on getting life. You see, in a world of chaos, you and I need to be firmly grounded in the truth of who Jesus is. And what he is doing. John the Baptist was that person who knew exactly who he was. And he knew exactly what he needed to be doing. And you and I need that same kind of assurance in the world that we live. The good news is is that as we keep on believing on Jesus Christ. Then we keep on experiencing that life that he puts inside of us. You see, when Jesus Christ saved you, He takes up residence in you so that His life then is a part of your life. And that's what John says, you'll have life in His name. Yes, that's eternal life. But I want you to know that that's more about the length. It also is about the quantity, the quality of our life. God put life in you. I'm glad to tell you this morning that there is no limit to the supply of the life that God puts inside of us. Uh, living can't use up that life do you understand what I'm saying living can't use it up and you know and I know that living gets pretty tough sometimes living can't use up that life because it is a limitless supply of life through God and Jesus Christ Uh, you might not buy gas but I'm going to tell you something you've got a power source inside of you that never ever runs out It's always there. And the more that we are thinking of Jesus and the more that we are considering Him and learning about Him, the more that we think about who Jesus is, what He did, what He's doing, what He's going to do, the more we experience that life on the inside. Oh, how we desperately need it today. As we face the uncertainty of the world. They needed it then. Those Christians at Rome. They needed it then. They got it. The message of Jesus. The truth about who he is and what he does for us. Continues to give us that life. That infusion. That empowering that we need. That life giving power of the gospel.
For you and I then, as we face the chaos of our world, we have the assurance. We continue to believe. We keep on having light. Do you know Jesus Christ today? I'm here to tell you this old, old story. That just like John so long ago, we still say, the Messiah is coming. Are you ready to meet him? Let's stand together, please.